My name is Seth Godin. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a blogger. Mostly I'm a teacher. And lately I've been running some online courses that are designed to transform people. Uh, I can't believe I get to do this for a living, but every day that I get to makes me happy. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Seth Godin, who is Adam Ashton's favorite author. A few weeks ago, we did Seven Habits, which is our favorite book. This is by far our favorite author. Yeah. And we've already reviewed a few of his books, yeah? Absolutely. He's the author of 19, 20 books, The Dip, Tribes, Purple Cow, Lynchpin. Yeah. There's a whole bunch that we'll do in the future. Mm. Man, I'm still buzzing. Mate, we go, we go through quite a few things mm. in this. We go through a wide range. As his expertise, his books cover a wide range. Dreams, fear, marketing and business, and just the, the future in terms of like global warming and technology and yeah, yeah, a lot of things. Went deep, went wide. I think you can take a lot away from this convo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a quick mention, we were uh, going to go into Thinking Grow Rich, but uh, Seth said, we got an email from yesterday and said, uh, I can do tomorrow. So Seth is jumping up the queue. We'll do Purple Cow this weekend and next week we'll get into Thinking Grow Rich and continue on from there. To get stuck into Seth. Seth. My name is Seth Godin. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a blogger. Mostly I'm a teacher. And lately I've been running some online courses that are designed to transform people. Uh, I can't believe I get to do this for a living, but every day that I get to makes me happy. Nice, that's phenomenal intro. We'll uh, we'll definitely dive into a lot of that stuff. Uh, I guess first things first. You mentioned in uh, in one of your books that freedom is both a, an opportunity but also a problem. So can you uh, explain what that means? It's extraordinary how many people will eagerly give up their freedom. Uh, they go into debt because it gives them boundaries and helps them know what to spend. They uh, sign up for a specific kind of course in college because there's homework and because there's tests, that having someone tell us what to do has been built into our education system from the beginning, that we are trained to know that we can succeed if we know what's on the test. Mm -hmm. But if there's a test, it means you don't really have freedom. So when we talk about the freedom, the freedom to create, you know, let's say you're going to try to make a life as a musician, it's tempting to start a cover band. Because a cover band gets you off the hook and prevents you from having to deal with some of the issues of, what, you wrote that, <laughs> right? And, and, and so of the million musicians you and I might listen to in a given year, 900,000 of them have traded their freedom and tried to make music that sounds like someone else. They want to be the next Bob Dylan, not this, Tom Hopkins. And the Internet has opened the door for an enormous amount of freedom in the way we make a career, in how we uh, interact with the world, in what we say, in the music we make or listen to, and we relentlessly give it up. We click on clickbait, we read the popular stuff, we try to fit in, um, and I'm against it, and I've devoted my career to being against it. Mm -hmm. we've, we've read uh, in some of your writing before, you say large-scale education was not developed to motivate kids or to create scholars it was invented to churn out adults who work well within the system. So what, what is wrong with our education system at the moment? Well, there didn't used to be anything wrong with that goal. Mm. Uh, the Ford Motor Company didn't have enough employees. 
that the coal and, and aluminum extraction companies in Australia didn't have enough employees. That once you got employees, if they did what they were told, your business did better. So that, you know, the idea of McDonald's is not try to invent a new hamburger tomorrow, please. The idea of McDonald's is make the hamburger the way we told you to because that's what we do. And so for 100 years, public school matched up with the industrial economy. But that has shifted. The industrial economy does not reward people who are compliant. If you are a compliant freelancer, you get paid $6 an hour on Fiverr. If you are a compliant driver, you make $11 an hour on Uber. And those people don't get the fancy snacks. And they're not necessarily satisfied with 50 or 60 or 70 years of that trying to pay back debt that they got into having to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so what we really need, and most parents that I know agree, are interesting, interested, challenged, and challenging young people who want to solve interesting problems and lead. But we don't teach them how to do either of those things in school. Mm -hmm. So how, I guess how... Uh Maybe that's too big a question. How can we? And how can we? You, you talk that uh, we're trying to get people to fit in and to be mediocre. How can we uh, help kids push to the edges there and get those benefits of leading and solving interesting problems? Maybe that's too big a question. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great question. I, I, I. Do you guys have kids? No. Okay. So. <laughs> how old are your soon, kids, by as, the way? Sorry. My kids are adults. Uh -huh. um, as as soon as you have kids, you become you become really familiar and focused on the educational system. And parents become seduced by the idea of a famous college. That if mm. your kid goes to a famous college, you must have done a good job as a parent. That you become seduced with good grades. Because if your kids get good grades, you must be doing a good job as a parent. And so we end up spending 12 or 16 years sending our kids to school, spending a fortune in time and money, without asking what school is for. Mm. And I think the simplest way to fix the school system is for every parent to say to every teacher, what is this for? Because if we don't have the conversation about what it's for, how are we going to make it better? You know, like the, at the screwdriver factory, they know what screwdrivers are for. And so they can tell if they're making a good screwdriver or a bad screwdriver. Mm. But we don't spend the same time at school. So I'm not saying I know what school is for. I have a theory, but other people may have a theory. And if you think that school is a finishing school to get your kid into a famous college so they can comply, then speak up. But if you don't, then speak up. And we don't have enough parents who are speaking up and enough teachers who are speaking up. Nice. Can we, uh, can we relate that to our jobs as well? I think probably we just go through the system and think this is the job, but we never really ask what's this job for, what's the, what's the purpose? Exactly. And that's, you know, if you look at the ennui and the pain on Wall Street, you know, here you have these people, mostly guys, who are making a million, two million, three million, five million dollars a year, and they're unhappy. Why? Well, what is their job for? They think their job is to make more money than the person at the desk sitting next to them, and that it doesn't matter what they do all day. Well, that gets old really fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much caviar can you actually eat? Mm -hmm. And if they thought deeply about it, they might realize that. Uh, eight hours a day, 40 or 50 hours a week for 50 years should be something for more than how much caviar can I buy. Mm. And so that leads to a giant chasm. And then for people who don't have those jobs, who are struggling to make ends meet, uh, who are in debt, who are part of the marketing machine, 
those people might be unhappy because they don't have enough stuff because they're not living the lifestyle that they've been sold. But is that what work is for? Right. And so when we think about why we do what we do and how we do it, it's very easy to put ourselves in a corner and say, I have no choices. I'm already 28 years old. Uh, I'm in debt. This is the best job I can get. I got to pay my mortgage on and on and on. The problem with that is it was designed to trap you and you fell for it. And if you get trapped when you're 28, you're going to be trapped when you're 48. But when you're 28, you have a different choice. And the choice is I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to live on the couch in my friend's house. I'm going to eat black beans and rice and not go to a bar. And I'm going to build something that's going to be hard for three years but will become a platform for my future. Mm. And we see people who do this. And it's not fun. And you don't get the kind of applause that you get if you just show up and do your job. But it's the platform that leads to a different road. And it's one that most people, 20 or 30 years later, look back and say, I'm glad I'm on that road. Mm. You know, so I'll finish my rant. I don't go to reunions because I can't remember people's names and I don't really like them very much. <laughs> Not the people, the reunions. <laughs> but I heard from a bunch of people after one of my business school reunions, and they were sad because they had accomplished everything they were supposed to accomplish 20 or 30 years later, and it wasn't what they expected. Mm. And I got to tell you, those people got way more applause the year after we left business school than I did because I didn't go to a fancy consulting firm, and I made only $32,000 a year. They were making $90,000 a year. Uh, but I made a choice about which path to go on. It could have ended up really poorly, but this consistent set of choices, I, it didn't end up poorly. And so I, I don't mind sharing with people that it, it's a possibility. I guess for the, the people who probably took the route of doing the 40, 50 hours a week for the, you know, try and go work hard until retirement, do you think a lot of these kind of jobs um, from the kind of factory kind of mindset through school would be uh, cul-de-sacs more so than they are uh, dips? referencing to the book The Dip? Right. So to, to catch up our listeners, I wrote a book, the only book I know of about quitting. And in it, I argued that there's two kinds of places we get stuck. There's a cul-de-sac, which is what happens if you smoke cigarettes long enough. You're just going to die from cancer. And there's a dip, which is something that feels really hard, that most people choose to quit when it's hard. But on the other side is clear sailing. It's on the other side where you've earned... Uh, a seat at the table because you did something scarce and something difficult. So the simple example is organic chemistry on your way to being a doctor. The reason there aren't unlimited doctors is because organic chemistry gets enough people to quit. That's why it's hard, not because it needs to be hard, but because they need people to quit. So if you draw a map of a big company, what you'll see is there's 500 people at one level, 50 people at the next level, 10 people at the next level, and one person at the next level. So of the 500 people, 450 of them aren't going to make it to the next level. Some of them just can't get through the dip, and they leave. It's like organic chemistry. But some of them are on a path that has no forward motion. And it's partly because of the way the path was designed, but it's mostly because of how we see ourselves. If you say, my job is to do what I'm told, then it's really unlikely that you're going to get hired to tell other people what to do mm -hmm. because your job is to do what you're told. And doing what you're told gives you way more satisfaction and way less freedom because it's not your fault. And 
what I believe and what the Alt-MBA is 100% about is that responsibility is taken, it's not given. And if we could figure out a ways to take responsibility, our lives get better. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that probably that getting from 500 down to the 10, down to the one is probably a dip in itself. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's a dip that I, I necessarily want to get into. I like your, uh, your pick me versus uh, pick yourself that you sort of made reference to just at the end there, that a lot of maybe the 500 are waiting for someone else to pick them. Uh, whereas how can we go about picking ourselves? Lots of people are waiting to get picked because, as I said, it lets you off the hook. Picking yourself takes no time whatsoever. Picking yourself well is what Steve Pressfield's book, The War of Art, is about, and his other book, Do the Work. And in those books, what he argues is that sometimes we pick ourselves to do some giant impossible project, because that's another form of hiding. Well, how can you expect me to have accomplished anything? I picked this project. You know, I, I was on the airplane the other day, <laughs> And uh, the flight attendant was a big fan. And he was talking to me. He said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this job soon and start my own thing. I said, what are you going to start? He said, an indoor golf center. I said, an indoor golf center? It's going to cost you $5 million to start an indoor golf center. Mm. He said, yeah, I know. It's going to take a long time. And I said, well, why don't you just start something on the weekends that doesn't cost any money at all to start? Mm. And he looked at me. He had never, it had never occurred to him that he could do that. Which is, of course, ridiculous because he's a smart guy. The reason it had never occurred to him is once it occurs to him, he has to do it because <laughs> it's not a, it's not a dream anymore. You can start on Saturday, yeah. right? <laughs> you, you can you can go to five garage sales, buy a bunch of old plates, sell them on eBay, make a profit, do it again next week, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, and the next thing you know, a year from now, you have enough money to buy an indoor golf center. But of course, you don't want to because who wants an indoor golf center? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So say for um, so say that person who just wants to start out, maybe get into their first kind of businesses and that. A lot of the books we read have conflicting information in. You know, some books will say throw a lot of shit against the wall and see what sticks, whereas some books and some people will say you know choose one thing and go hard at it, and then you know you might get lucky after a year or something. What do you recommend? Either choosing one thing and going hard, or or throwing a lot of shit against the wall. <laughs> well, I think it's a blend of two. I think you pick an audience. You pick a group of people you want to change, people you want to teach, people you want to earn trust from. Once you pick those people, the chances that you're going to find the right thing for them, the first try, is very low. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need to try lots of things for them. Mm -hmm. right? So you guys have read a whole bunch of books that I have written, including Survival is Not Enough, I'm thrilled to see. Survival is Not Enough is one of the, my favorite books that I've ever written. It took me a year, eight hours a day to write it, and it was a complete failure. It didn't sell. Fewer than 20,000 copies are in the world. Hmm. Why? Because I was wrong about what people would read. I was wrong about what would resonate with them, and they let me know they were. I was wrong by not buying it. Okay, fine. Does that mean I should go build a product for plumbers? No. I built a product for the same group of people with a different approach. And then I built a course for that same group. So mm. I only have one audience in the world. Mm. I just try to put on a show for them. And when I find something that resonates, I can do it more. Yeah, nice. Who would you say your uh, audience is? I feel like we're in it, but, uh, but who, who would you say your audience is? Uh, Good-looking, charismatic, <laughs> <very successful laughs> That's us. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> 
connected <laughs> people with a lot of hair. Um, <laughs> you know, it. it's not the demographics, it's the psychographics. And I am trying to teach people who are thirsty, who are enrolled in a journey to make things better. That's my audience. And so how can the, uh, you know, the, the, the 26, 28-year-old guy who, who wants to build something big, uh, whereas you say they should probably start a little bit smaller, how do they find that, that audience that they want to change? What's the, how, how do they go about finding that audience that they should build products for? I don't think it matters. <laughs> I think I think you need to find a group of people that have the means and the interest to change the way you seek to change them. Mm-hmm. But other than that, there's no right answer. So one of the great brands in North America is Harley Davidson. It's worth over a billion dollars. What is the change Harley seeks to make? Mm-hmm. Harley turns disrespected outsiders into respected insiders. They went to a group of people that felt like it was not seen or heard or respected, and they made them feel seen and heard and respected. Does that mean Apple computers should have picked the same audience? No. Totally different group of people. But in both cases, you have a group of people that were ready to hear from someone who had the resources you have. So if you are starting with no money, and I wrote a free book called The Bootstrapper's Bible, which you can read online. I gave it away after I sold a bunch. Um, you need to find people who need what you sell more than they need their money. That's, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Because if you can find that group, as soon as you tell them what you sell, they will eagerly buy it from you, giving you money that you need to build your business. That's the constraint. Whereas if you're Jeff Bezos or, or Tim Cook, you know, if I'm Tim Cook and I have over $100 billion in cash, Tim ought to be selling to people who need more than a small nudge mm. before they decide they want to buy something. Mm. And just on someone choosing the work they want to want to do with their life, um, do you think everybody has a purpose with, with their work? I mean, look, some people are happy to sit on the couch on a Friday night and have a few beers and watch the footy. You know, does everyone, including them, have a purpose with their work? Or, or, and if they do, how do they get in touch with that? Yeah, I love this question. I think that's nonsense. I don't think anybody is born with a purpose. I think that if Vincent van Gogh's DNA arrived this morning at Metro General Hospital, that kid would not grow up to be an oil painter painting impressionistic paintings. I think if Steve Jobs had been born in 1700, he wouldn't have just Mm. sat around with his arms folded waiting for the silicon chip to be invented. (laughs) That's ridiculous. That what we can do is make a difference and then feel good enough about it that we can call it our calling. What we can do is hide because it's not working and say, well, I can't do anything else because this is my calling, right? Mm. That this doesn't make any sense to me. That you probably need to be seven feet tall and quite athletic to dunk a basketball. But the only thing that leaders have in common is that we don't have anything in common. And this is a choice. And you make a choice about going forward. And I think all the whining about whether or not it matches your dream is sort of silly. If your dream is to do something that works, then you can do anything you want. Nice. And so it's becoming easier than ever. You said it's, uh, it's easy to you know find an audience and, and start something on the weekend in your spare time or stop watching TV and do a couple of hours each night. 
Uh, so the tools are getting cheaper. It's becoming easier to, I guess, reach and connect with people with different sorts of media. So if it's so easy, what's, what's stopping people still? Because not everybody's doing it, that's for sure. Almost no one is. And it's the resistance. It's fear. It's brainwashing. It's uh, cultural uh, expectations about who we are and what we do. That when one person in a town starts doing something, they're weird. When five people in the town start doing something, oh, that's interesting. And when 30 people start doing it, everyone says, wow, I'm in. It's <laughs> Roger's adoption life cycle. It's people embracing it. Uh, you know, the, the fact is one person acting like a summer camp counselor is just a weird guy in the woods. But 30 people doing it, and it's summer camp. So <laughs> you, you got to decide how much can you put up with in terms of the people around you saying that you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And if you can't put up with much of it, go find some other people and hang out with them. Yeah. Mm. How do we how do we know what we are afraid of? Is it is it is it is it that obvious or does is there yeah how do we know that we are actually fearful of what people think? Well, for me, the resistance is a compass. When you say I don't really feel like it, you probably found something that you're afraid of. <laughs> that when you feel that itch to go check to see if there are comments on your podcast or what people are saying about you on Facebook, even though there's no economic or, or cultural reason to do it, mm-hmm. you're checking because you want that fear to go away. So those are the two sides of it, right? Habits that we do to sort of distract us from the fear and the habits we do to keep us from confronting the fear. So for me, if I go too long between blog posts that scare me, then I know I'm not working very hard. And that what makes me know I'm working hard is that before I hit publish, I'm like, uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> nice. I think one of the big uh, uh, messages that comes up a lot in your stuff is this might not work. I think it was in the inside of the cover of the big behemoth up the top there as well. Uh, what does that mean? And, and how can we do more of that? How can we get out there and dance with the fear more and try things that might not work? Well, so the first level, which all of us are good at, is... I finished it, this will work. I did it, right? There's lots of people who are ready to put something into the world when they're sure it's going to work. The second level, which is way more important, is this might work. I made something, something new, something fresh, and I'm pretty sure it's good. It might work. But the best level, the highest level of generosity is to say, I made something, I made it for you, I have an instinct it's going to resonate, but you know what? It might not work. That takes real guts. Mm. Because then you, before you got any feedback at all, you've already become comfortable with the idea that maybe, just maybe, you did something that isn't going to get you what you saw. Yeah. Mm. And, you, and in, in contrast, you said that people might, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe the, uh, a, a coach tells them to go out and experience value and rejection so they go and ask for a a free coffee or something so they get rejected and can experience that rejection but that's a whole different level compared to the third level you just mentioned there of putting in something that you really care about and say i made this for you but it might not work exactly yeah the failure olympics really pissed me off um, because (laughs) you're not doing it for anybody there's no generosity there then when you see the video of the guy trying to manipulate a Krispy Kreme employee into making a donut in a funny shape, hoping <laughs> he'll, get, he'll get rejected. 
the woman in that video is not proud of what happened, mm. right? He wasn't doing it for her. So you've now experienced a totally different set of emotions. And I'm just not interested in, in having people go there. If you are doing it for someone else and it doesn't work, well, then at least you've done right effort. Mm. And I guess another thing I want to delve into is you, you talk about taking the, the long arc and that taking that long arc is actually a shortcut in the sense that it gets you to where you want quicker. And I thought that tied nicely into your, your, your post from yesterday, uh, Gusto Lugace, uh, about the, uh, a lot of steps that is worth something in the end compared to easy and quick but worthless. Exactly. You know, I wasn't invited on any podcasts for the first year of my blog that the first month I got 100 visits a day and then I got 110 visits a day. And then in year two or three or four, I took the comments off and people criticized me wildly. Mm-hmm. And along the way, half my blog posts have been done worse than average and on, on and on and on. But all that time that I've been doing one blog post a day, lots of people have been hunting for shortcuts. They were early on Tumblr and they were early on MySpace and they were early on Facebook and they were early on Twitter and then they were early over there. And, they, and now they're coming around 10 years later and they say, and now I'm going to build a blog. Yeah. And if they had just started 10 years or 15 years ago, they'd be me, right? That mm. it, Not one day was actually that hard. You just show up and you show up and you show up. You do it for the audience, not for yourself. And if you're are going to get through the dip, it's because you can sense that you're making something resonate for them. That's why it's happening. Nice. And what about the people who say, oh, I wish I could do what you do, but I'm not, I'm not Seth Godin. Uh, Neither so am I. So I can't do it. <laughs> right? I mean, when I started, there was a small S, small G. Who the hell was I? Yeah. Right? It just, Seth Godin is a symptom of things that happened after you show up enough to change people. It's not what you start with. Mm. and you talk about that that your blog uh, you don't sort of track it anymore in, in terms of the numbers really and that even if no one else is reading it still show up so is that some of the something that's super important we have to just always show up and put out a blog post each day or a podcast each week even though no one even if potentially no one's listening yeah I mean doctor comes home from the emergency room and says to her husband a patient died today so I'm not going to be a doctor anymore well, if, you, if the only way you can be a doctor is if every patient survives, mm. then we'd have no doctors. That part of being a doctor is you do it even if the patients die because tomorrow a patient might not die, right? And the same thing is true with our writing, with our singing, with our organizing. There's no doubt you're going to do an event and no one's going to come. I've done that. But does that mean you give up or do you still ad- – embrace the original idea which is there's a group of people that you seek Mm -hmm. to serve there's a group of people you want to change if that's still true then you have no business stopping nice you got me with the gender of the uh, doctor as well (laughs) so uh, yeah moving on to a bit of marketing now what is the difference between marketing and advertising and how has this evolved over the years uh i would argue in 1965 they were the same thing so if you look at Mad Men or some TV show like Bewitched, uh, the, the marketing department ran ads. And the reason that that worked is because ads worked. If you made an average product for average people and ran a lot of ads, we were, the Western world was becoming richer faster than any time in history. 
and you would sell enough stuff to buy more ads and around and around and around it goes. Now, most things that succeed wildly don't have any advertising at all, mm-hmm. right? Google, Amazon, Microsoft, go down the list. None of these behemoths, Uber, occurred because they had good TV ads. They could because they had good marketing. And the marketing was they made a product worth talking about. They built virality into what they did. They created an engine for growth by building a product or a service that people would miss if it was gone. That's what marketing is now. Modern marketing is about empathy and humility and uh, effectiveness. It's not about clever ads. Nice. And what uh, I see a lot on uh, on Facebook, people trying to sell courses on how to optimize your Facebook ads for clicks. Uh, but that's definitely still stuck in the advertising as opposed to your version of marketing, yeah? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. You've, have you gotten any email from my friend? He's a, a prince in Nigeria and his father passed away and left $20 million <laughs> in a bank account. You've gotten email from him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing is, he writes them so that any person who isn't stupid is going to throw them out, right? I mean, it's filled with misspellings. It's obviously a scam. You deleted them. I hope you didn't call them. (laughs) (laughs) So why does he do that? Well, he does it because only stupid people are the ones who at the end of the funnel are going to give him money, Mm. right? Well, if you optimize your Facebook ads for clicks, you're going to get people who are good at clicking on Facebook ads. Mm. That's what happens. Yeah. And so the step after that is a bunch of click-happy people go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But all the way up at the beginning, because you optimized your clicks for that kind of person, mm-hmm. you ignored the person you were actually trying to reach, the person who never clicks on Facebook ads, except yeah. for yours, mm-hmm. right? So that person is going to have a funnel that costs way more money to get people in at the top, mm-hmm. but gives the right kind of yield at the bottom because, back to what we said 20 minutes ago, your mission is to change a certain kind of person. And if that kind of person is the kind of person who clicks on Facebook ads, then there's a good match. You should go take that course. Uh-huh. But for everybody else, you've got to figure out a different way to engage people. Mm. So how do we make products or content or, or things like that that other people tell other people about and, and spread naturally? Yeah, well, that's the hard part, isn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, we just made everything else easy. easy. Mm. You guys could send one email to someone in Shenzhen, China, and a factory with 400 people will start working on it. And you can send one email to a shipping company that will put it in a container ship and for $3, bring it to Australia. And you can send one email and have a customer service operation set up over a weekend. Every single thing you need to do is easy, except for that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and the rest we can work out ourselves, I guess. (laughs) Um, What are some of the most uh, common mistakes people make when it comes, comes to marketing? Well, I think the most common one is marketers are selfish jerks. Mm. Not all the time, but that's the mistake, that we lack empathy, that we think we are entitled to attention, that we think the short run is better than the long run, that uh, we think that if they only knew what we know, they would do what we do. But that's never true because they don't know what we know. They know what they know. And if you knew what they knew, you would do what they do, Mm. but you don't. So there's the gap, right? That's what we teach in the marketing seminar is this empathy gap between the way you see the world and the way your person seeking to change sees the world. And if you can't figure out how to see the world through their eyes, they're just going to ignore you. Yeah. Mm. So moving on to um, 
maybe we'll go into the bit of the marketing seminar now. Can you just tell our audience a little bit about what the marketing seminar is and yeah, what kind of problems will be solved for them? So my mission is not to cut down trees. My mission is not to write books. My mission is to make change happen. And it's really clear to me that a lot of people would prefer to have their change happen through digital interaction than by reading a book. So the last two years have been spent rethinking really deeply what an online course even is. Mm. So I don't believe that the best online courses are just videos. I think there are people who will pay money for those, and I have some because I'm not ashamed of them. I'm proud of what they do. But if you want me to tell you how to make them really work, it turns out the real education comes when you do the work yourself and when you do it with other people. That when you coach somebody else through a problem, you learn it way better than I could teach it to you. So we're just finishing up the first marketing seminar and launching the second one. The first one was 50 videos over 100 days and then an in-depth discussion board where every other day you were doing work, sharing it with other people, helping them with theirs. Thousands of people connecting around us and it was transformative. It worked, it changed people really significantly. And so we're doing it again, but I wanted to answer people who said, I don't have 100 days. So we're cramming all of it into 30 days. So it's like summer school. Do they call it summer school in Australia or do they call it winter school? Uh, no, we don't have anything like that. I don't think. Just, okay. We just have summer holidays. We just, we just go to the so, beach. <laughs> if, you, if, if you don't do well in school, you get to go over the summer and cram in a course to fix it. Yeah. So That's right. this is not for people who are delinquents, but it does work in a compressed way. So we're going to show 50 videos over 30 days, have everyone in the discussion group, and take them through this kind of engagement. So I'm not there personally. I'm just there in video form. Um, but really quickly, people figure out that all of us are smarter than any of us, including me. Mm, yeah. Nice. And so I know the, uh, the second uh, version of the, the marketing seminar starts uh, the 24th of, of July, I believe, 2017. But uh, what if people listen to this weeks or months or, or years into the future and they've missed the 24th of July, 2017? Will it, will it be around again? Can they jump in later? I don't know. (laughs) I I am not good at making those sorts of promises. I want to make promises I can keep. And if this changes people, then why not keep doing it? You know, the Alt-MBA, we only promised we'd run it once. It's now in its 14th session. Uh, We have 1,500 or so alumni. And as long as I can find people who are ready to make that kind of leap, I will do my best to keep running it. But I really don't have a lot of patience for people who want to put things off, and I have even less patience for people who wait till the deadline. Mm-hmm. That I have a long history of doing projects, and inevitably, there's 20 people who at one minute before midnight submit <laughs> their thing. Yeah. And I'll tell you a secret, I just delete all those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you also have a. Uh, you said you don't. You're not. Uh, maybe you may be moving from the books to the the online courses, but uh, I believe there's a a secret book, uh, Footprints on the moon there uh, is in fact a about? secret book just blew the secret <laughs> <laughs> I'm mailing it for free to the people who are in the course to see what they think yeah unreal <laughs> so what, what is that, that that book about if you or is if that a I secret as well that's a secret, secret. isn't it nah. <laughs> uh, so just on books what we're, uh, we're aware that you don't really watch too much you know, TV or other kinds of media and you, you love reading yourself. Is there any books or what books have been most influential on, on your life? Well, here, you can see them all. They're right here. 
There's uh, like 400 on there. Oh, you, can, you can't see? Yeah, yeah we, can see, we can see. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast guys can't. <laughs> yeah. E- yeah. Ebooks suck because you can't have a bookshelf full of them. That's it. Yeah, um, big shrine. <laughs> you know, it, there's a huge range, and I and I I talk about them often because uh, I don't understand why anyone wouldn't want to promote other books that matter, even if they're the author of books. You know, Lewis Hyde wrote a book called The Gift. Uh, Brene Brown has written some important books. My friend Susan Piver and Pema Chodron have written books on mindfulness. Uh, I've talked about Steve Pressfield's work. Uh, if I was going to pick one book for the people listening to this that they haven't read, it would be The Art of Possibility by Ben and Ra Zander. Total game changer mm-hmm. of a book. Um, but science fiction books, uh, Diamond Age and Snow Crash, uh, I've read thousands and thousands of science fiction books. They help me think bigger. Uh, Steve Blank wrote a book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany that if you're building a entrepreneurial venture, you really need to read it. It's brilliant. Uh, he worked with Bob Dorf on that. And if you can find writing by either of them, totally worth it. Yeah. So it's all over the map. Al Pitt and Polly's books on meetings and being persuadable. I could go on all day. Uh, I think the issue is not can you find one great book. It's are you going to read a book a week for the next 20 years? Because if you do, you'll read a 1,000 books, and some of them will be above average. Nice. I think there's a lot of books to add to the list there. I've only... Uh... I've read Stephen Pressfields, but other than that, they're all new ones to add to the list. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Unreal. There's uh, just quickly one last question I really wanted to get your, your thoughts on. Are you optimistic going forward in the future with, say, technology and global warming and, and the world unco- world economy and all this uncertainty? Are you generally an optimist about what's to come in the next few t- uh, decades? Um, I'm a realist. You know, science doesn't care whether people believe in it or not. It's still true. And a billion people are going to be really hurt by atmosphere cancer. A billion people are going to lose their homes. They're going to get skin cancer. There's going to be diseases and floods. Uh, I don't think anybody is prepared for the biblical nature of what happens when the ice caps melt. Uh, So I don't think it's possible to be excited about that. On the other hand, uh, we live in the richest world that there has ever been and the safest world there has ever been and the most technologically advanced world there has ever been. And to waste even one day of it being sad about something, yeah. I think we need instead to dig in and do something. Um, and I don't want to hide. I want to dig in and help in the ways that I can. In the short run, I think this cusp of this technological revolution we're in now is going to intersect with two other revolutions, artificial intelligence and bioengineering. And those two things are going to change the world more than anyone has any expectation of. That jobs are going to go away, that our bodies are going to be transformed, that who the hell knows? I've read a lot of science fiction. But the science fiction authors are having trouble keeping up. They don't know how to invent something that's impossible. <laughs> nice. Well, I reckon that's a phenomenal place to, to leave it there. I guess where can people sign up to the marketing seminar? Where can they find more about you and grab some books and, and where else you want to send them to? Um, if you go to themarketingseminar.com, there you will find the marketing seminar. Uh, if there's a purple circle, you should click on it. I don't know if it's there anymore. Uh, <laughs> altmba.com will teach you about the AltMBA. And if you want to read my blog, just type Seth into your favorite search engine and there it will be and I will be there tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that I promise yeah (laughs) fantastic anything else mate 
No, that's about it for me. That was awesome. You guys phenomenal. are great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Seth. That was <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> Unreal. Cheers. Man. Cheers, bud. Guys, for us, we think the world would be a better place if they just read books and stopped listening to some of that crap that's on the TV. <laughs> Mate, we like uh, a few TV shows, but most of it is just uh, a waste of time. A lot of the news. Books. So yeah. if you guys uh, also believe in our vision and think the world would be a better place uh, if people just read books, give us a review and then more people find the podcast and more people start reading books. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Get some, get some books into you. Yeah. Hey guys, let me turn on video here, like that. We've got our, uh, we've got our shrine to Seth behind us. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty scary.